Okay, good. Excellent. Well, there's been a bit of a theme going on this morning, which is all very encouraging. Um, so we start with a rocky road, a rocky, uh, a cobbled street, um, <laughs> a cobbled street. Um, and some of you may be feeling you're sort of going down there, holding on, not knowing if you can keep going. Um, and through our worship, we've been remembering that we have a good God. And, um, and we've been encouraged to, to be lifting him up and putting him at the center of our thoughts and, and, our, and our view and, and think of what he's done for us, what he's going to do for us. And as Keith brought that um, passage as well, it's reminding us that in the light of all of that, that, that which we're going through at the moment, which is difficult, um, we can come to see as just light and momentary affliction. And that's, I say, all very encouraging because that is the essence of what I'm going to be speaking about this morning. So that's good. So we're in Acts chapter 27 this morning and the beginning of chapter 28. And this is basically just a story. It's an account of a sea voyage. It's a story with a lot of the classical elements of a good tale. So it describes a journey, a journey that starts calmly enough, but which quickly goes off course. It's a tale of peril and hardship and adventure. There's lots of drama in this story. They escape death and reach safety, only to be plunged back into mortal danger again. There's courage and there's treachery, and there's hospitality and camaraderie. And there's a good ending, like the best of all stories. So all that's well and good, but why did Luke include it? And what are we to learn from it? And that's the question we're going to try and address this morning. But uh, first, we're going to read the story. But before I just plunge in, I want to just give a little bit of background that might just help you to make some sense of it. First, the destination is Rome. Now, God had already told Paul that he was going to go to Rome and he was going to testify before Caesar. And that's an important point for us to remember. And Paul really wanted to go. He'd been trying to get there for some time. And so it's a big deal for Paul. It's an also an important part of the conclusion to the book of Acts. So if you remember, one of the themes of Acts has been the expansion of God's kingdom from its origins in Jerusalem right through to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth is represented in Acts by Rome. So this story is about Paul taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that's important. Second. Virtually the whole of this story takes place on a ship, or three ships to be more precise. But these aren't ships as you've experienced them. These weren't pleasure liners. They weren't even cross-channel ferries. These were small, cramped wooden ships. They'd been dirty, smelly, uncomfortable. They'd been bad food, no beds, no showers. And, of course, you don't want to even think about the toilets. Ah, and Paul was a prisoner. Okay, so this is Acts chapter 27 and the first 16 verses of chapter 8. So quite a long Bible reading. Don't try and follow it. I've changed some of the phrasing just so it reads a bit more smoothly. In any case, I want you to try and engage your imaginations this morning. I want you to try and imagine what would it have been like to be there. Try and put yourself in Paul's shoes. What would he have been thinking and feeling? What would you feel like or what would you have felt like if it had been you there? So let me tell you the story, and of course it is Luke narrating. As soon as arrangements were complete for our sailing to Italy, Paul and a few other prisoners were placed under the supervision of a centurion whose name was Julius. At Caesarea, a port on the coast of Samaria, 
We boarded a Mycenaean ship, which was due to sail north as far as Antioch, and then west along the southern coast of Asia as far as Ephesus, stopping at each port on the way. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, went with us. The next day, we stopped at Sidon, about 70 miles up the coast. Julius treated Paul really well, considering he was a prisoner, and even let him get off the ship so that he could enjoy the hospitality of his friends there. Once out to sea again, we sailed north under the protection of the northeastern shore of Cyprus because the winds were coming out of the west, and so they were against us. Then we went up the coast westward towards the port of Myra. While we were there, Julius found an Egyptian ship that was bound for Italy and transferred all of us on board. Unfortunately, we quickly ran into bad weather, and it was impossible to stay on course. We got taken away from shore and out into the open sea, and after several days of difficult sailing, we finally made it to the southern coast of the island of Crete. And because of the impossibility of sailing into the wind, we docked at the very appropriately named Good Harbour. By now, though, we'd lost a lot of time. In fact, we'd passed the autumn equinox, and that meant the weather was going to turn. Through the winter, stormy weather was inevitable, and that was going to make it way too dangerous to carry on sailing. And Paul, who had probably spent more time at sea than most of the others on board, warned that if we continued with the voyage, there would be disaster for the ship, for its cargo, and even for the lives of those on board. But the fact is, the harbour we were in wasn't a good one to spend the winter in. Whereas Phoenix, which was just a few miles down the coast, was much more suitable. So the centurion ignored Paul. Instead, he listened to the ship's captain and the ship's owner. And they persuaded him to carry on and make for the next harbour. They waited for a while. And then, when a gentle southerly breeze came along, they took up the anchor and set sail, thinking that it was all going to be straightforward. But... They were no sooner out to sea when the wind suddenly turned and a great gale blew down from the northeast. There was no way to go against the wind, so the captain was forced to let the ship be driven way off course away from the island. We soon came under the lee of a small island called Clauda, and while we were there, we managed to get the lifeboat on board and to get some ropes under the hull so that we could strengthen it. Then... Because they were afraid we'd run aground on the notorious band of rocks that stretched right across the north coast of Africa, the crews threw out the drift anchors. After that, we were just driven at the mercy of the wind. We were being violently tossed around by the storm. So the next day, they started to throw the cargo overboard. Then on the third day, the sailors took the even more drastic step of throwing the tackle and provisions overboard too to make the ship even lighter. For many days, we didn't see either sun or stars, so we didn't know where we were. The wind and the waves battered us relentlessly, and virtually everyone on board gave up any hope of rescue. Their appetite for food was long gone. They had even lost the will to live. But Paul wasn't one who had lost hope. And now, presumably raising his voice above the wind, again he spoke to everyone on board. Friends, he said, you really should have listened to me back in Crete. We could have avoided all this loss and injury. But I want you to listen to me now and to be encouraged. Because although we will lose the ship, no one will drown. Last night, an angel of God came to me. The God to whom I belong and the God who I worship. 
And he said that I was not to be afraid because I must stand before Caesar. And because of this, I would be kept safe. But not only that, but all who sail with me would also be kept safe. So be encouraged because I have absolute confidence in God. It will be just as he has said. But we will run aground on an island somewhere. Sometime after he said this, actually 14 days later, 14 days and nights of being driven across the Adriatic Sea, at about midnight, the sailors sensed that we were approaching land. So they put down the measuring ropes and measured a depth of 120 feet. Shortly after that, they measured again, and this time it was just 90 feet. We were clearly moving to land quite quickly because they were afraid we were going to run aground. So the sailors threw out four anchors and prayed for day to come. Some of them hatched a plan to try and escape. They pretended that they needed to lower the lifeboat into the water so they could attach the anchors to the front of the ship. Their plan was to try and use the lifeboat to get ashore. But Paul saw what they were doing and told the centurion and his soldiers that if the sailors didn't stay with the ship, then everyone would go down with the ship. This time they did listen to him and they cut the lines on the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn on the next day, Paul again called everyone together and encouraged them to eat. He said, this is the 14th day we've gone without food. Obviously, none of us have felt like eating. But I urge you to eat something now because you're going to need all your strength today. And we're going to come out of this unharmed. After he'd said this, he broke the bread and gave thanks to God, passed it around, and all 276 of us ate a good meal. What was left after we'd eaten was thrown overboard to make the ship a bit lighter. Day came, and we saw land. No one recognized where it was, but they did notice a bay that appeared to be a decent beach. So they decided to try and run the ship aground on it. They cut the anchors, let the rudder go free, then raised the small sail and let the wind take us towards the beach. But we didn't make it. While we were still quite a long way out, we hit a reef, and the ship began to break up. As if this wasn't bad enough, the soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners so they couldn't escape. And normally, if the prisoners escape, it's the soldiers who would end up being executed. But fortunately for the prisoners, Julius really wanted to save Paul, so he stopped them. He gave orders for everyone that could swim just to jump in and go for it, and everyone else, he told them, find something you can hold on to that'll float, then jump into the sea with it. And that's what we all did. And every single person made it to the shore alive. We found that we'd arrived on the small island of Malta, about 50 miles south of Sicily, the people there were really friendly to us. It was a cold and windy day, and obviously we were completely soaked. So they built us a huge bonfire and gathered us around it. Paul was helping to gather sticks, and when he'd got a bundle, he put them on the fire. And when he did, a venomous snake, driven out by the heat, bit onto his hand and held on. When they saw the snake hanging on like that, they concluded that Paul must be a murderer and that justice wasn't going to let him escape. But nothing happened. Paul just shook the snake off into the fire. And they kept watching, expecting that he would soon drop dead. But after a while, it became clear that wasn't going to happen. So then they changed their mind and decided, actually, Paul must be a god. Not the first time that had happened. Well, the head man of that part of the island was a man called Publius, and he took us into his home as guests. He dried us out, put us up in really fine style for the next few days. As it happened, his father was sick at the time with a high fever and dysentery. So Paul went to the old man's room, and when he laid hands on him and prayed, the man was healed. Well, word of the healing got round fast, and soon everyone that was on the island who was sick came and got healed. 
So we spent a wonderful three months in Malta. They treated us like royalty. They took care of all our needs and gave, every, gave us everything we needed for the rest of the journey. Finally, spring came and it was time to go. An Egyptian ship that had wintered there in the harbour was getting ready to leave for Italy and we got on board. The ship had twin gods for its figurehead, sometimes known as the heavenly twins. We stopped at Syracuse for three days and then went up the coast to Regium. Two days later, with the winds out of the south, we sailed into the Bay of Naples. We found Christian friends there and stayed with them for a week. Then, at long last, we were on the final stretch of the journey. Friends in Rome had heard we were on the way and came out to meet us. One group got as far as Apian Court. Another group met us at three taverns, all emotion-packed meetings, as you can well imagine. Paul, brimming with praise, led us in prayers of thanksgiving. When we actually entered Rome, they let Paul live in his own private quarters with a soldier who had been assigned to guard him. Paul had arrived safely in Rome. So quite a long and detailed account. Why did Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, include it? Well, I'm going to suggest three things this morning that we can learn, but I'm sure there are many others. Let me just get a drink of water before I go into that. Okay, so the first then, Paul's journey to Rome was difficult, and we shouldn't be surprised when we face trials in the course of our journeys. So let's remind ourselves of the trials that Paul faced in this journey. Well, for a start, he was traveling under guard as a prisoner. Then right from the beginning, they faced bad weather. They got swept out to sea and had a hard time getting back into harbor. The harbor they did get to wasn't a good one to overwinter in, so against Paul's advice, they carried on. Then the weather got even worse. They got swept right out to sea in a violent storm. They couldn't eat or sleep. They couldn't see the sun or stars. They didn't know where they were or where they were going. After many weeks of this, they got shipwrecked, and the guards wanted to kill the prisoners. And when they did make it to land, Paul, who was already cold, tired, and hungry, was bitten by a poisonous snake. Now, for most of us, it counts as a drama if we have a choppy crossing to Paris or to Calais and then get stuck in traffic on the way to Paris. Paul's journey was really tough. But that was Paul's journey. What's that got to do with us? Well, we could draw the obvious parallel. Paul was on a journey. We're on a journey. Paul faced trials and difficulties, and we'll face trials and difficulties. But we have to be careful with that kind of thing, because not all or even most of the events that are narrated in the Bible can be treated like this. Just because something happened to Paul doesn't mean that that's going to happen to us. But I believe in this case, we can draw a parallel, partly because the parallels are quite close. Paul was a servant of Jesus as we are. Paul had been commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, the very same commission that we've been given. And all this happened as Paul obeyed the command to go. So if Paul faced trials in the course of his obedience to the, um, following the commission that we've been given, why would we have a right to expect that it should be different for us? But the other reason I think we can apply this passage to ourselves is that Paul's experience so closely matches what we have been told to expect. See, I think that Luke is using, Paul, is using Paul's actual experience as he took the gospel to the ends of the earth as a metaphor for what we can expect as we do the same. In this, Luke is just simply illustrating graphically what the rest of the New Testament teaches. We could start with Jesus himself. He said that in this world, 
we would face tribulation, that we would be persecuted. James tells us to consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Peter says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. Paul tells us to be patient in tribulation. The writer to the Hebrews tells us of the need to persevere through suffering. It's a big theme in the New Testament. So what we see here in story form is an illustration of what the rest of the New Testament teaches. That the Christian life of obedience to Christ is not without difficulty or trial. Now, clearly our trials are not going to be the same as Paul's, either in type or in magnitude. Most of us won't be lost at sea or shipwrecked, bitten by snakes or hopefully taken prisoner. But the strong likelihood is that we will face trials of some kinds. Some of these will simply be because we live in a fallen world and share in its suffering. So this might be sickness or being ill-treated by others or injustice or bereavement. But it may well include trials that are a direct consequence of our obedience to Jesus. In fact, Jesus was more direct. He said that our obedience would cause us to suffer. And that's a hard word. It's not one that I really like to dwell on. I don't want to suffer. And you know, the Bible never glorifies suffering and doesn't tell us to seek after it. But you see, my worry for myself is that my expectation and my desire is that I won't suffer. My preferred vision of the future is of a comfortable retirement with my lovely wife. Maybe the children coming to visit. Perhaps some nice holidays. And these aren't bad things to hope for, but they aren't easy to square with Jesus' warning that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul's assertion that all who seek to live godly lives will um, face difficulties. Now, I say these are hard words, and I don't say them because I want to bring fear or guilt. But let me just list a few of the reasons why it's important for us to be reminded of them. First, well, it's just simply because it's here in the Word. Paul tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for instruction. So we, or on this instance, in this instance, me, who is tasked with teaching you, can't simply gloss over it because it's not what we want to hear. Second, we need to be warned and prepared. It would be quite wrong if we allowed the impression that the Christian life is an easy one. That once we become a Christian, all our problems somehow disappear. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. And we don't want to be caught off guard when it happens. If that's our expectation, then when trouble does come, we'll have all sorts of questions at a time when we're not well equipped to deal with them. Thirdly, we live in benign circumstances here in the UK. There is no organised or state-led hostility to us as Christians. But this is an exceptional situation. Throughout history, Christians have been persecuted, and even today, across much of the world, they still are. We need to be aware of that and to remember them. There's a group here in the church that regularly pray for the persecuted church. And there may be other ways, too, that we can stand with them and encourage them. Fourthly, I want to encourage us to make most of our current freedom and not to expect it as a right or to expect that it will necessarily continue as it is now. As I said, my concern for myself is I've come to expect that life will, for the most part, be comfortable. And that's a dangerous expectation because it causes me to avoid courses of actions that might um, threaten that state of affairs. So I need to challenge that expectation in myself. And maybe some of you similarly need to be challenged. 
And what I want to do this morning is just to introduce a bit of grit into our shoes, so to speak. I want to raise a question in our mind and hopefully give us some calls to think and reevaluate some of our assumptions. And that's all I want to say directly on that subject just now. I know it's not an easy subject to be reminded of. And taken on its own, it could be quite depressing. But it isn't the whole story. So I want to move on to another part of the story. This is the second point that I want us to note. And that's throughout all of this, Paul was victorious. If we go back to Luke's account of Paul's journey, we've seen that it was very full of quite severe trials and difficulties. But how does Luke depict um, Paul through it all? Do we see any evidence that Paul was crushed by his experience or even mildly disheartened? Did he question what was going on or question or wonder how this could be part of God's plan? Did he reconsider his belief in God's goodness or sovereignty or power? And of course, the answer is no to all of the above. In fact, what we see is completely the opposite. Every time we see Paul mentioned in this passage, we see a man who is completely in control, a man who is completely unfazed by all that was going on. This is a man who is encouraging the others. A man who, despite being a prisoner, was advising the captain. He, had sh- he showed leadership and strength throughout. He heard from God. He healed the sick. He preached the gospel. This wasn't a man who was captive to his circumstances. This was a man who lived victoriously through them all. And that should be an encouragement to us. Because the reason that Paul was able to, um, to do this wasn't that he was superhuman. He didn't have special powers. He wasn't a superman. He was an ordinary man, just like us. But he was a man who knew his God. And the God who Paul knew and worshipped is the same God that we come to today. God hasn't changed. So when trials come in our lives, we can overcome for the same reason that Paul could. I want to suggest that the key verses in this passage are verses 23 to 25. They read this, and this is Paul speaking. This very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. That last verse can be translated, so take heart, for I trust God. God, or I believe in God. And for this reason, I know it will be exactly as I have been told. The reason Paul was able to stand strong, victorious throughout his trials was that he had an unshakable conviction that he belonged to God and that this God was utterly trustworthy. This was a God worthy of worship, a God who was true to his word. He was convinced that nothing could separate him from God's love in Christ. You'll remember that some years earlier, Paul had written to the church in Rome, and in this letter he asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was Paul's sure and certain hope. And it can be our hope too. You know that as Christians, we have not been promised that we would not go through trials. And many, if not all of you, know that. We do. And I'm not trying to say that it's easy. The point of this passage is to illustrate that Paul faced real difficulties. He truly suffered, and we do too. And perhaps there are some of you, even here today, that are experiencing such a time yourself. And it's really important that you know I'm not trying to minimize the hurt or the pain that you might be going through. And I'm not trying to say there's an easy way out, a quick solution that will quickly sort everything out. I'm not even saying that it's possible for you to come to a place of understanding the reasons why you're going through the things you're going through. But what I am saying is that you're not alone. That even if you feel that you're sinking, there is a rock under your feet. King David was a man who knew what it was to suffer, but he also knew his God. He wrote in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Again in Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. This is God's promise. Not that he will take us out of our trials, not that it's wrong to ask, even Jesus did that, but if we do have to go through them, his promise is that he will never leave us or forsake us. His love to us is unchanging and his promises to us are true. Now, you might say, that's all very well for you to say, but I don't feel it. How can I know that is true? And God's people have been asking that same question for thousands of years. And God's answer is almost invariably the same. Look back, he says, and remember what I have done. I have always been faithful. I have always kept my promises. I have always been consistent in my love. And it may be there are things in your own life you can look back to and remember, times when you've known God's love and goodness. But even if you can't bring any of those things back to mind, we can always go back to what God has done in history. We can always remember God's supreme demonstration of his perfect love to us. When Paul writes of his conviction that nothing can separate us from God's love, he is doing just this. This is the ground of his hope. Let me read a few more verses from Romans chapter 8. So Paul asks in verse 31, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. And it's after this that Paul asks the question, 
Who can separate us from God's love? And concludes that there is nothing in all creation that can do this. So you see, the grounds of Paul's confidence is that God has demonstrated his love to us in such a profound way that all questions as to his goodness and his faithfulness have already been fully answered. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how can we question his faithfulness? If he would do this, what wouldn't he do? Jesus himself who died and was raised from the dead. Jesus who was raised to the place of highest honor at the right hand of the Father. Jesus who is reigning forever. Jesus who is Lord of all. This Jesus is interceding on our behalf. We were foreknown by God, chosen by him, called, justified and glorified. We've been made sons and daughters of the living God. No wonder that Paul could say, we, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How could it be any other way? Because our God is good, and he's demonstrated that in the most powerful way imaginable. So in the middle of the storm, after many days of not knowing whether they would live to see another day, after many days of not eating, of not seeing the sun or the stars, when many on the ship had given up, hope of life. After all this, Paul was able to stand in front of all the people on the ship and say that an angel had come from the God he worshipped and he had absolute confidence that the word this God gave was true. And we need to do the same. Whether we're in the storm or whether we're in a time of peace, we need to look back to the cross. This is love, John said, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son for us as a sacrifice for our sin. This is the ground of our hope. He's done that already, and he's not going to let us go now. He will be with us. He will keep us until that time when we see him face to face. So just before um, I draw to a close, let me mention the third point, one more way we can learn from Paul in this passage, and that is that Paul worshipped if we go back to verse 23, we, see, we read this. This very night there stood before me an angel of the God that I belong to and who I worship. And this could equally well read, an angel of the Lord, of God that I belong to and who I am worshipping. In other words, Paul isn't just saying this is the God that he takes to be his own, but this is the God who in the ongoing present tense is worshipping, even now, even in the middle of the storm. Even now, when they haven't seen the sun or the stars for two weeks and the sailors all think they're going to die. Paul is worshipping God. This was his normal practice. Now, you might remember that when he was in jail, having been beaten with Silas, they were there in the jail singing praises to God. And throughout his letters, Paul continually writes exhortations to, to, for us to rejoice in all circumstances, to continually give thanks to God. Now, I'm not going to dig into this much. I just want to make a couple of brief comments. Firstly, he's not saying to give thanks for the trials, but to give thanks to God. Because he is good all of the time. He has been and is being and will be good. What he has in store for you will far outweigh what Paul referred to in Corinthians and Keith um, reminded us of as light and momentary afflictions. As we praise God, we lift our eyes up above what is happening and we remember who God is. We remember his great and his unfailing love to us. We remember what our future is 
in him. And all this helps us gain a better perspective on where we are now. And I think there's more to it than that. As we praise and worship God, things happen in the spiritual realm. As we draw near to God, he draws near to us. As we worship, Satan trembles and flees. There's a power in worship. And perhaps because of that, it's not always easy. But I want to suggest that we need to learn to turn more quickly to worship, especially when times are hard. Paul did, and we can learn from him. Worship isn't just what we do here on a Sunday morning. It's what we're called to all of the time. You know, Luke didn't include this account, so we'd be condemned by how far short we fall of Paul's example. It was put here as an encouragement for us. Paul was able to be victorious because the God he worshipped was victorious. And God allowed Paul to share in that victory. And we have the same God, and he does the same for us. God didn't airlift Paul out of the difficulty, and he doesn't usually do that for us either. But he was with him, and he did bring him through. Paul did get to Rome, and he will bring you through too. These are things we need to know. It's good to have truth that we can draw on when times get tough. But I know it's not necessarily easy to receive that sort of thing when you're in the middle of testing times. And if that's you this morning... I want you to know I recognize that. But we do want to stand with you. So please do speak to us afterwards. We would love to pray with you and know um, how we might be able to support you through that.